Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard and joining me today is Evan Floden. Evan, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot for having me, Grant. Yes, I'm Evan Floden. I'm the CEO, co-founder of Sakara Labs, previously been building the Nextflow project for the last 10 years or so. So I've been very interested in and sort of following the developments of bioinformatics over that time. And it's, uh, it's great to be on the show. Thanks for joining us. And I'm sure most of our listeners have heard of Nextflow, but maybe not everyone's heard of Sakara. Can you tell us about the company and its origins and pulling the strings behind Nextflow? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so Nextflow was started by myself and co-founder uh, Paolo Di Tommaso. And the, really the idea around Sakara was really a continuation of the project, but really kind of bringing it to fruition in terms of a commercial sense. So Whilst we focused originally on a lot of the work that Nextflow was doing on pipelines, now we've kind of expanded out of a fair bit from that. So Nextflow, we began 10 years ago. Sakara has been around for about five years now. We're really focusing on taking some of the principles that Nextflow has, the idea of empowering scientists with modern software engineering, sort of came about from the use of things like containers, the adoption of cloud, really enabling scientists to use those tools and to focus on that. And Sakara is just a continuation of that, but now kind of broader sense. So really making the whole bioinformatics pipelines accessible, but kind of going beyond the pipelines uh, as well. And what's your business model? Very much focused on bottom-up adoption from the open source. So in terms of Nextflow usage, we're, we're looking at around 100,000 people in total. So use Nextflow. And that gives us obviously a, you know, a really cool base. In terms of business models, it's mostly focused on selling to enterprises, to organizations, to folks who are scaling up from single bioinformaticians to running things in production um, and really providing them the, the infrastructure, the, the tools that they need to kind of build the pipelines up and increasingly so with the other sort of aspects as well. Have you seen adoption beyond bioinformatics? Interestingly, in, in Nextflow, yes. So Nextflow doesn't have anything too specific with regards to bioinformatics in the way that it's written. However, obviously, its application has very much been focused uh, and been used in bioinformatics. So we've started to see use cases and things, for example, image analysis. You start to see it, for example, satellite image analysis, um, also radio astronomy. Anywhere there is like scientific workloads that have a particular kind of batch component to them. I think an element of that, the user base has developed a lot of content in Nextflow through things like NFCore. And that obviously lends itself to, to people picking up Nextflow itself and using it for life sciences. But it's not to say it doesn't, it's not being used in other areas. And obviously we're, we're happy to, to kind of support that and see where the community takes that. How did Nextflow and Sakara evolve? Uh, can you kind of take us back to the, to the beginning and what your thoughts were then and how that's played out over time? Absolutely. So, so Paolo and myself were working in a lab in CIG in Barcelona, and our lab was looking at multiple sequence alignment. Folks in bioinformatics may be familiar with some software called T-Coffee. It's a very commonly used multiple sequence alignment tool that was developed by our former our former supervisor, uh, Cedric Notre Dame. And as part of that, the sort of job in the lab of Paolo was to enable us to run those analysis. And it was we were particularly interested in high throughput, so, so tens of thousands of sequences, and looking at how small variations in those sequences can have an effect on the multiple sequence alignment and the resulting outputs. That was the topic of my PhD, and that was where I was intended to go and, and study. Obviously, as I got there, I sort of started to spend more and more time on Nextflow, and that kind of, sort of evolved from there. It was a very small project to begin with. We just uh, published it uh, onto GitHub. It started with, I remember after, after a year, I think we had a list of the 10 people who were using it or 30 people who were using it. And it was a very kind of a small start. Over time, we were able to just continually evolve and adapt it. 
it's one of the great things about open source is you're able to get that feedback and people able to contribute ideas back, issues back, and it allows us to really evolve from there. It's been a fantastic, I guess, journey over that time. We got to probably about five years into the project and realized that there was first a commercial opportunity, but secondly, it's something that we both love doing. I was getting towards the end of my PhD and I just really wanted to, to keep working on the technology. I saw a huge potential. Paul and myself traveling around Europe and doing training courses and the like, and just really saw the opportunity to like take that to the next level. And that's kind of the spark for creating Sakara and kind of seeing all the kind of opportunity that there was from that. I should say so that since starting Sakara, Nexplo has increased its usage at least sort of tenfold on that. So I guess there was a, a slight kind of risk at that time in doing that, but we were pretty convinced on, on the project and it's really been the foundation for everything we've built so far. Yeah, it's gotten very widespread adoption in, in biotech for sure. I mean, it, it, I think it's one of those situations where people want to use a tool that is nice and robust that a lot of the potential hires they would be looking at have experience with. And I think NextFlow has kind of gotten to that critical mass where it's not this really niche thing, right? It's certainly for people who have been in biotech for a few years, a lot of bioinformaticians have experience with it. Yeah, that's, I think that's an interesting point on like how does something like Nextflow, you know, essentially become a de facto standard. It's an interesting one in that if you look at there's been you know many groups or, or many times that folks have tried to create sort of standards, whether this is in academia or in industry bodies um, and the like. And if we kind of look into parallels of other of the areas, things like you know, the the Docker container is almost like is the standard for containerization, but that was. That was started by a few folks who had an idea and, and created a company and now, you know, really kind of revolutionized the, the world of modern software. I think that Nextflow has kind of similar ideas and that it was like we were trying to do something kind of a little bit against the grain, not necessarily sanctioned by anybody. And that kind of almost spurred us on in, in some sense. But then once you get that critical mass kind of it has taken off, I think that there's so touching on the aspect of it. I agree. It's fantastic that folks you know can come in. They've already got the skills. And Nextflow, and then there's that other whole piece to it, which is what we call the, what I call content, but it's really the pipelines and, and and all of that material, which enables folks to take take those off the shelf. There's now in things like NF Core, there's modules, which is we're getting up to over a thousand modules there, which you can really kind of mix and match the components of your pipeline, and obviously use the framework and the tooling to build that there. And, and that's that's really you know you can save organizations so much time just even getting started with that analysis. So, for example, add their own module in, which is specific maybe for their chemistry on some sequencing, but they can you know, use the rest of the pipeline. Those kind of examples are sort of very prevalent, and it's, it's something which I think is you know, possible from having this kind of open science approach to things. And what's your vision for the company? So as we mentioned at the start, we've really been focused on the workflow execution piece, and I think this is going to continue to be our bread and butter. We still see that challenges exist with regards to, to kind of scaling generally across bioinformatics, but also you know, across life sciences as well. The volume of data is not decreasing. It's, uh, if anything, it's, it's increasing the use cases for sequencing as well, and imaging analysis is increasing. The kind of multimodality of the work which is coming in is requiring very kind of it's almost like different approaches. So we focused a lot on that high throughput piece. There's an element where we've been building up a, a collection of open products, things like Nextflow. We have MultiQC, which is the most widely used analytic and reporting tool. Uh, we also have Fusion and Wave, which are two infrastructure tools which allow folks to run these pipelines at scale. And that's a kind of like a core layer of infrastructure 
We're then building on top of that the Secure platform, which is the, essentially the, the, the main product which our customers uh, purchase. And as part of that, that's the kind of the piece that we're, we're kind of scaling up beyond the pipelines into things like data management, into things like interactive environments and the like, and kind of going from there. There's a lot of platforms which sort of claim to do the same thing, though. I think we have a, a slightly different approach to that. And that's, I think, kind of could be one of the key differentiators here as well. And who are your competitors and, and how are you different from them? There's been like, you know, genomics in the cloud has been around for a while. And, and there's obviously been some big players there for, for a fair amount of time. There's obviously a, a whole bunch of, of newer ones as well who have received uh, funding recently. We still see the biggest competitor and at least sort of, I mean, the majority of deals is folks building it themselves. They are typically kind of building these systems. You often have people who are, say, familiar with a certain way of doing things and they're kind of trying to basically do the same thing in the cloud or they want to kind of scale up beyond single users. And we see a, a lot of customers who, who purchase the platform, they've already tried to build their own thing first. So that's the kind of the, the kind of core competitor that we see in terms of kind of building that out. The other competitors there are kind of, when I think about sort of gen- generic genomics in the cloud, um, they're really kind of focused primarily on, on a lot of simplification. And I think that there is a, certainly a subset of users who are who do need that, that simplification. But one of the things that we really kind of think about a lot is when we think about our value that we provide, we're not necessarily just helping people sort of simplify. We're also making the science easier and also making it possible to do harder things in some sense. So it's really about taking modern software engineering, providing those tools to scientists, and it's a little bit like treating scientists like they are developers and giving them those tools to do harder things than to specifically kind of uh, run things in a more simple way. The other aspect of that is that whilst we have our open source roots, that really means that when customers run an Exploit pipeline, they run in their environment. They run in their cloud. If you connect up our platform, you connect it up to your cluster. It could be running in Europe and you could connect it up to your Azure instance, which is running in West Coast you are moving the workload to where the data is in this case, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a very much more like an, an open framework, an open platform that allows you to connect like that, as opposed to more of a, a kind of a walled garden, which you see in, in the other approaches. What challenges have you encountered the dramatic growth you've had in your user base? I think I think the challenges is, is often from an organization side of things is, is really just scaling up. How do you go from a group of people, a small group of people, really kind of building something to be able to replicate that across an org. It's a lot about investing in folks. Not everyone you hire is, is going to have a PhD in bioinformatics and being able to translate those skills and, and, and to be able to have that customer empathy and that kind of customer understanding and, and almost like scientific understanding of the problem is a challenge. And I think that that's kind of applies a lot. We, we, you kind of see in some other organizations where bringing folks in maybe without any kind of life sciences background or ability to kind of or willingness to learn in that doesn't necessarily translate so well. So it's a kind of, from an organization perspective, it's a lot about building that context and, and building that organizational knowledge and, and memory to be able to, to do that. On the user base side, I think this the we haven't really you know had too many challenges, I would say, on, on that community growth. We've been very fortunate that projects like NF Core really came out of the community. They were organic in the sense there is folks who building their own training courses. There is people who have just built so much content around Nextflow, the plugin systems, the, the 80 pipelines on NF Core. That's really kind of almost, I would say, it really happened organically. And therefore it hasn't really involved too much in terms of like necessity of resources or 
work from our side other than, you know, kind of really just trying to foster that community and enable those people to, to solve the problems for themselves. This is your first company, right? So I guess there've been a lot of new things to learn. What surprised you the most? I think, so I, I previously had worked at a, a startup for, for four or five years, which was a very interesting experience. It was very small at the time. Uh, the company ended up going public. So I, I spent some time there and doing product development. It was at the bench though. So it was a very much a scientific role. I saw that there, that it was very interesting. However, like it was just very slow to do things at the bench given to kind of what you could do. And I kind of, the my inkling for tech really kind of got the better of me uh, and sort of went into the bioinformatics field. When I think about like how that journey has progressed, and I think particularly the last three years as you start to hire and, and work, I was surprised at how important the personal relationships have been. I think as a scientist, you often think of the world of business or you think of the world of, of creating an organization. You think it's very transactional. And when I think about the folks that we've partnered with on the investment side or the people that we have, we've hired or the partners that we've kind of brought on, the customers, those relationships are now, you know, in some cases, you know, 10 years old. And I've just been so surprised at how important and how deep they have been. Just give my kind of maybe slightly naive view coming from a kind of purely academic um, perspective. So I think that's the key, the key one I always go back to when, when I think about that. That's an interesting observation. I think it aligns with what I've maybe seen as a broader perception in academia, uh, where actually, you know, many things are more transactional in, in academia than, than they often are in uh, biotech. Although in both contexts, those personal relationships are crucial and very, very long lived, right? Because it's, it's a very small world and, you know, you often work with the same people for many, many years in many different contexts, right? I mean, I know we very often work with uh, the same people, but at different companies because there's so much churn, you know, they'll leave one company and go somewhere else. We work with them there. And, and then someone else from that new company leaves and goes to another. And, you know, but it's actually those kind of personal relationships can play a much larger role than the, uh, the formal relationships with the, the companies in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've had one customer who's on to company number three, and he's a buyer number three as well in terms of in terms of spreading the uh, the word there. So that's I mean that's the kind of relationships which you kind of think about. They grow over time. I think the the community aspect of Nextflow helps a lot with that. We really think that there's a lot of value you can add, and through that community, through knowledge sharing, trying to kind of solve those problems with those folks, and hopefully bringing some software to them, which 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 adds that value. And then obviously as part of that, that can you know, helped and kind of broaden and, and strengthen the relationship. On the academia side, like it's definitely very important. I think particularly around some of the relationships you form with folks like your supervisors across that time. I think those are very special relationships. They can last a long time. I'm not going to go too controversial and try and think about sort of the order of first author ordering as often happens in some academic papers. Thankfully, I haven't been had too many um, situations like that. But uh, yeah, definitely don't envy that. For sure. On a completely different topic, how do you think about on-site versus remote versus hybrid at, at Sakara? Yeah, we, it's an interesting one for us. We started, we really kind of got our, our pre-seed funding in March of 2020. I quit my job at the CRG and I was like, right, we're going to do this in February. We started working at home because we didn't have an office for about two or three weeks. And then the rest of the world kind of joined me on that. So that was a kind of interesting you know, transition. Like it's like, we hired our first people during that. We, so we raised our first money in March 2020. So that was like 
been forced into it. Particularly in Spain, it was particularly like long and uh, strict lockdown. Sort of as, as part of that, it kind of forced us to be essentially distributed team from the beginning. And given the focus of where the customer base is, which is primarily in life sciences hubs, so you can think of Boston, Massachusetts area, California, so, so US East Coast and, and also some, some stuff in Cambridge, UK, that was going to always be the central hub for our customers. And we, we kind of had to deal with that from the beginning. So that was a reality for us. In saying so, we're now, we try and build ourselves out from hubs themselves. So we believe that it's great for people to be able to get together if anything, for the social aspect of it and to get to know each other and to you know, build those relationships more than the actual, the work of, because most folks are going to be in Zoom calls for, for a decent chunk of the day anyway. So that's our, that's our kind of our take on it. We kind of believe in those, building those relationships. And it's not easy though. And I think it's particularly not easy if you're a young company and you start like that in a, I would say, non-intentional way. It was, it was definitely not our intention to do things in that, in that sense. Um, it kind of happened and we've, I guess, you know, tr- tried to do the best that we can in, in terms of managing that. But it's something that we would, you know, have learned a lot from. And, and I, I guess like a lot of the tools and like a lot of a lot of the folks, it's become the new norm for, for many things. If you hadn't gone down the Sakara route, what do you think you would be doing now? Interesting. I, I don't really think about that, that kind of stuff too much. I think that well, I, I still see myself as a scientist at heart. I really do enjoy the, you know, the scientific process. I enjoy discovering things and you know, learning in this way. I could definitely see myself tinkering a lot and I would you know, c- continue to do that, whether that's in more product development roles or any kind of scientific method development. So very much like what we were doing and so doing a PhD. That's the kind of thing that I really in- enjoy doing. I think as part of this role though, I've been learning a whole lot of new stuff, which also excites me as well. Like uh, it's many different things that I didn't think that I would be doing. So it's hard to say. I'm very glad that I've kind of gone down this path. In terms of what I would be doing in another sense, I struggle a little bit to think about it. If you could go back in time to give yourself advice in 2018 as you started the company, what would that advice be? The best piece of advice that I give myself, but in some sense really to about like the bigger picture sometimes, because it's very easy to get drawn into the day-to-day and the kind of the, the small things. And I think particularly as a company scales, you can often, you find yourself kind of thinking all those little things. And it's really only when you step back and you see the growth or the success or the, the things that, that things really matter. So being able to kind of zoom in and, and yes, the small things do matter, like getting those things right is important, but also being able to kind of scale out sometimes. And I guess just getting that balance right is difficult. It's a very intense job. It's a lot of hours and it's a lot of time. I think that trying to get that balance right, I wouldn't even call balance, that sort of harmony in your life. And by having those different perspectives um, and also different perspectives on the different elements of your life, that's the kind of the piece that I would, the advice I would give myself to try and to try and work on. And, and I think you can tell from my description, something I'm still trying to work on now. Are there any practices you've adopted over time, you know, having a protected half day a week or something to focus on that? Or um, has it been kind of a moving target? It's very, very much for me, it's about, I like routine. Um, it's the way that I'm able to structure structure my life. That typically starts with sort of beginning in the morning, spending some an hour or so with my son before I have to go to work, and then really trying to fit in all the things that I need to do to, to feel good around the work. So for me, that involves, I cycle to work, I need to get to work. So I cycle there, it's a, takes 45 minutes or so. And then I kind of do the work. And then maybe at the end of the evening, I'll be able to kind of cycle back 
and then try and kind of fit in those times just to try and make it work in a way where I don't feel like I'm sort of going too much in one direction. So being able to kind of pull those things together, the way that it works. I do find this is very difficult with travel though. Traveling obviously like it makes it very difficult to fit in the routine um, in that. So I'm trying to be a little bit more structured about that. And so one of the things I'm working on to, to improve as well, I guess a lot of folks have a similar, similar challenges there. Do you have a kind of a travel system down now, you know, checklists and things that kind of feel like you've optimized it? What I've been working on now is more around basically having Monday to Friday where I'm trying not to travel during that period. So like I will travel on the weekend to different places and I will be in a location for a week. Even things like staying in an Airbnb if possible, because then you have got like a relatively normal house where you can get into those routines. Just trying to do to, to that more. That helps me a bit. I'm still not super, I wouldn't say I wouldn't call myself like having a system down, having particularly a way of doing things. I, I like to have a setup, a structure. So where I've got my laptop with my keyboard mouse guy. So like kept having that kind of setup and structure just helps me a lot as well. And what kinds of things do you find yourself traveling for Sakara these days? Yeah, we've, we've got a lot of events that we're running. And uh, so given the focus is in a lot of North America, we're spending a fair bit of time there. So we have, for example, the, the next Flow Summit, which is going to be in Barcelona, but also in Boston this year. So we're spending some time there. We also do Sakara sessions, which are kind of great events for the community to get together. We'll often have some talks on technology, things that are becoming updated, product updates, roundtables, this kind of thing for three or four hours in an afternoon. Previously done those in, in San Francisco and in San Diego, Boston as well, kind of the hubs and, and kind of continuing to build about that. We've been doing a few shows around. We're going to be at uh, ASHG this year and going to be traveling a, a fair bit around that. And so those are kind of the, the most of the areas. We also have, as I said, a distributed team. So being able to spend time with them is really important as well. Great. We'll have to have our operations director come say hi. I won't be going to ASHG, but we will have a booth there. <laughs> yeah, folks are absolutely welcome to come say hi. We'll get you some uh, next flow swag and uh, always happy to give folks a demo. Nice. What message would you have for our listeners about Nextflow and Sakara? I mean, I, as I said, I, I'm sure... Most of our listeners have heard of Nextflow and probably many are users, but for those who haven't used it before, how would you recommend they get started? Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you're thinking about running pipelines in a way where you want to run them in your own infrastructure, where you don't want to deal with the complexity of, of setting that infrastructure up, then Sixcare Platform is a great way to start out. We have a community showcase where there is collections of pipelines which are available where you could log in, select those pipelines and run those and get a feel of how it works. And we also continue to add in more options around that, which is kind of enabling on the data management side. Uh, so by the, by the time this, this podcast comes out, we'll have a data explorer, which enables you to really browse and, and search across different buckets, across different object storage that you may have. And we're also looking to bring out more functionality in the interactive space. So that's a great folks place to get started. If you go to tower.nf or if you go to sakara.io, you'll be able to log in there and, and find it out. It's absolutely free to go go work that and, and give it a go. Great. And for people who are already, you know, casual Nextflow users, how would they best, you know, further build their skills? Yeah, I, th I think there's a, some interesting courses which have come out recently, which have been developers by the community as well as from folks at Sakara around advanced Nextflow usage. That's been a really, a really useful set of resources which have been built out. I think... Being around the NF Core Slack or the, and the Nextflow Slack is a, always a great place. There's a lot of people doing very innovative things there, platform and being able to connect that in there. And then, and then of course, attending the events 
is always a great place to see that. Uh, we have 50 speakers, I believe, across across the events of Next for Summit in, in Barcelona and in Boston this year. It includes sequencing, sequencing companies. Obviously, the large cloud providers are all going to be there presenting the latest, the latest things. We have customers in developing kits. We have customers working in population genomics sequencing projects, as well as obviously a whole bunch in, in, in biopharma. So that kind of range of use cases can give people a really nice understanding of, of what other folks are doing. And I think that that format as well, where you can really interact with people, can go a little bit deeper into the specifics of, of how they're solving those problems is, is a great way to learn. So in theory, something like NextFlow would be fantastic for kind of scientific reproducibility, right? Which has obviously been a major issue in the life sciences. But what do you think are the major barriers to adoption of NextFlow for those purposes, right? Because you usually hear about NextFlow in the context of people trying to do analysis on their own data for their own projects and so on. And it still seems pretty uncommon to see papers published where they have, you know, kind of single button reproducibility in a way. Yeah. And I would point folks to the NextFlow paper from 2017 that we published, which is Really, a little bit of inception here, but we published the Nextflow paper, obviously using Nextflow, which is uh, really describes a lot of that. And from that Git repository, you can re- reproduce everything, calling Nextflow from notebooks. So the ideas of like open science, I think they're worth exploring because it goes a little bit beyond just what people consider open source. And that open science is really a kind of a, a key part, reproducibility, sorry, is a key part of that. So when you think about open source, it's almost like it's like a license. It's like, okay, you put Nextflow software out there, People can use it. People can kind of do what they want with it, Apache 2.0, et cetera. Open science goes beyond that. And it goes to that point where, as you say, people are, for the most part, still just publishing papers. But we start to see more and more adoption of folks who are not publishing papers, but they want to publish the paper and the analysis, or even just the analysis in itself. When you want to run that analysis or even reproduce the result there, if it's not going to run on your laptop, it's going to be very difficult to um, to do. So you're 100% right that Nextflow enables that piece. It does it through... A couple of ways. One is obviously containerization, so that integration of containers means that the, develop, the environment that the task runs in is, is essentially absolutely the same byte for byte. The other piece of it is that you can run those containers then in any infrastructure. So you can run them in AWS, or you can go run them in your cluster, or you can run them on your laptop. That piece then enables people to reproducibly do that and almost like validate the result. That then has like a, a little bit of a flywheel effect, though, because if, if I publish my analysis in that way, or my tool in that way, you can then take it and then you can put your data into there as well. And that's kind of the kind of the real important piece, I think, that Nextflow has enabled there. If we think about that going further, one thing that we've really stressed is this kind of idea of empowering scientists with modern software engineering. So you can reproduce the workflow, but how are you going to reproduce the environment that you use to set that up? Or how are you going to reproduce the data set that you use in this sense? And that's really what we've been working with Sakara is basic is the whole thing is, is defined or can be defined from API. There's a CLI as well. So you can say, you know, import this pipeline or define this computer environment in this way, import, export from that. And it's treating the whole research environment in a reproducible sense, not just the uh, individual component. And this is very much in the vein of infrastructure as code, like setups where folks have been using things like Terraform for building those environments and just kind of taking it to the next step. Uh, specifically for bioinformatics. What do you think it'll take to get that to become standard practice, right? I mean, there are some individuals and a few groups that routinely will do 
we'll do that. But majority of the time, you know, it seems these are done by custom scripts that are available upon reasonable request, right? And, and then nobody ever gets them. <laughs> it definitely is changing as depending on where you are. So if you are developing a new tool, it's, it's kind of by default, it has to be there. The If you consider it was going to be in a paper, the reviewers would essentially have to run the tool and, and try it out. I think the more you go down, like to different areas, then you'll see, it'll, I agree, it gets kind of less and less in terms of that compliance. I think it's probably very much like carrot and stick in this sense. Carrot in the way that if you consider like yourself, like when you write something in Nextflow or you write a pipeline or analysis in a reproducible way, you're really just doing it for yourself in three months time. Because if you're anything like me, in, in three months after you've done an analysis, you come back to it and then you have to rerun it because you've got a, a new sample or you've got some new parameter. It's just absolutely impossible to remember how you did it, what you did it, like exactly that. So that, that reproducibility piece is, is almost like for yourself in a very selfish way. That kind of implies the carrot. The stick bit is is coming from this, the publishers. So, so as our former supervisor, uh, Cedric Notre Dame, he has uh, one of the NAR journals. And as part of that, it's really about publishing pipelines, publishing things in this way. And then it's using standards like NF Core to do that. So you have to publish in a completely reproducible way, can define exactly what you are publishing. And I can really see us moving towards a, a, a situation where the paper is just you know one artifact of the actual output. However, it's not the main output. The, the actual main output is in often cases like the actual analysis of the tool. And I say this is particularly relevant for tool development, which is obviously very, very kind of widely used in, in bioinformatics. Nice. So maybe changing gears a bit, can you take us back to your your childhood? You know, what got you interested in, in science? Yeah, so I was originally born in New Zealand. I spent um, probably the first nine years there and, and then got the opportunity with my family. We, we lived in Malaysia and, and Sweden growing up for some years. I think in New Zealand, it was a very kind of natural environment in some senses, there's obviously a lot less people and a lot more nature. That kind of got me interested in bio. And I vividly kind of remember thinking about sort of biology in the sense. Uh, during high school, I kind of got a little bit obsessed with scientific nonfiction and, and kind of saw myself really wanting to go in, into biotech. I think bioinformatics at that time was much less prevalent. I guess it was very early for bioinformatics. So that's kind of what led me to, to study biotech and then to spend time really going into molecular biology. I had a really interesting opportunity for a couple of years uh, as an undergrad working in a yeast laboratory. And what we were doing was essentially had like the knockout set of yeast. So it's, uh, you can imagine very large agar plates. Each one of those plates has got really a couple thousand samples on it. And each sample has got one different gene removed. And you can treat this with different chemicals or you can make these yeast together. And you can look at chemical interactions or genetic interactions and kind of understand what's happening there at a, at a kind of genetic level and how it integrates with those pieces. There was obviously a bit of robotics, obviously a lot of yeast culturing, and you know a touch of bioinformatics as well. And I think that's one of the things that sparked my interest into bioinformatics later on. Although, although to be fair, I didn't do that until I went to, to Italy to study a master's there. Bioinformatics wasn't available in New Zealand at the time. So it was kind of my sort of opportunity to, to jump into the field. And so, so you, so you finished your degree in in New Zealand in 2010. And what did you do then? I joined a startup. It was a very interesting startup. It was about five people at the time. We were developing a medical device, which kind of sounds nice and clean, but the medical device itself was it's coming from the fore stomach of sheep. So I'm not sure if the listeners are familiar with with haggis. 
is essentially one of the stomachs of the sheep. It's a very interesting material. We were trying out lots of different materials, and, and the idea was to see if we could create a bioscaffold, so essentially a tissue which could be used for soft tissue repair in surgery. You would remove the different layers on the top, decellularize it, freeze dry it, and essentially end up with a shelf-stable product, which could then be used in, in different applications. So the first few years there, did a lot of product development, got FDA approval uh, for the, the basics of the platform, and really from ended up developing several other products, for example, creating multiple layers of this or breast reconstruction or hernia repair, and just was really just involved in that whole, I guess, startup phase. It was really exciting. It was really interesting. I saw how, I saw the determination which was required to create a startup, but I also saw how interesting it could be to work on many different topics and, and many different things. And that kind of change I really liked. And I just kind of was just enthralled by that. And I kind of got my, I guess it kind of laid this place, the seed let's say, for what was happening with Secura later on. And what brought you to Italy then? So I, I really wanted to get into the bioinformatics. I think it was something I'd been pushing for. And and that's where I got an opportunity, I got a scholarship to do a master's there. It was a very interesting time. I got to like fully focus on that. And I kind of knew some basics of programming, but I, I really got to like fully hunker down and and spend a good 18 months or two years just, just purely focused on that. It was a, the, the bioinformatics program in, in Bologna is, is, is quite wide, widely known. We got to do fantastic things. For example, we would built in a Markov models, you know, from scratch, from the individual components, really got exposed to how machine learning was working in sequence analysis itself. It's quite a kind of mathematical program, but it really gave me the basis for many of the things that kind of sort of came later on. It's actually where I met my supervisor, Cedric, and that's kind of what started the, the journey into, into Sakara. I had a little bit of time in, in Cambridge in between in, in the UK working at RFAM, but uh, that was the kind of what got me started in that in that. Nice. And then after your stint at Cambridge, uh, you went back to Italy, right? For Wait, So Barcelona, yes. Sorry, so it's Barcelona. That's where I started my PhD and that's where I met Paolo and uh, the story kicked off. Nice. And then afterwards, you, you stuck around in Barcelona at the CRG. Were you working at all with the CRG during your PhD? Yeah, so my, my PhD was sort of at the CRG. It's a, uh, it's a research organization, but I mean, technically you're, you're part of a university as well. Although you spend the whole time in the research organization, it's more of a affiliation so that they can provide you with an academic degree. Yeah, really interesting place. And in, like, there's a lot of, uh, it's really like the leading biomedical research center in, in Southern Europe. Fantastic location as well. Very international. And it provided a, a fantastic opportunity to learn there and be surrounded by, you know, some smart people and, and obviously lead to what we're doing. And does Sakara have any formal relationship with, with CRG or is it kind of just another institute where there are a lot of Nextflow users? <laughs> yeah, obviously, like uh, with CRG being the home of Nextflow, let's say the original home of Nextflow, um, there's always a, a kind of a special relationship there. They have, the, the usage of Nextflow is obviously very uh, wide in the in the organization there. We kind of consider ourselves uh, like a spin-off the organization. And so the kind of relationship kind of stays so special in that way. That's great. And do you have any advice for our listeners who might be scientists who are considering the entrepreneurship journey? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a hard one in the sense that like you don't know until you really kind of jump off and kind of jump off the diving board in that sense. I found it personally to be very rewarding and very fulfilling. As I said, related to your question before, I can't really imagine myself having not done this or doing something else. At the same time, I fully admit it's not for everybody. There's a lot of sacrifices you make in other aspects, which are difficult. 
It's a way that you can have a very fulfilling role, very fulfilling job. And for me, being driven by the impact of it, I think it's just the way that I felt that I would best be able to use, kind of, kind of build something that would kind of scale and that would have the most impact on it. And I think that one of the reasons behind Secure at the beginning is, is really just to, to spread that. Um, I was one of the first couple of users of Nextflow. It, it really changed how I was working and I wanted to put that into as many people as possible. I kind of feel the same way about like what we're building in Sakara. There's great technology, which we just want to you know, put into the hands of scientists to help them work. That entrepreneurial journey is, for me, it's really much, it's just the way to get that done. And it's that kind of the way that it can manifest, I would say. So if you look forward 10 years from now, what would you consider a success for, for Sakara? We really want to see ourselves as First and foremost, having helped 1,000 biotech, biopharma organizations really reach their own goals. And for that, that's usually you know, outcome and patience. We want to see biotech continue to grow. We want to see the adoption of those technologies. We want to see things like personalized medicine become available to people. We want to see the kind of the promise of the genomics technology to become a reality in that. That's the kind of the first, I think, that we can play a really important role in making the analysis part of this, their analysis part of this, accessible, available, open, and kind of build the kind of bioinformatics tool framework that in the world that we want to see it in there. From an organization perspective, one of the things I, I really I would love to see is that from Sakara we almost create our own ecosystem as well. So whether that means of employees who create their own things or really kind of new projects which, which sprout from the Nextflow ecosystem, really seeing that gives me a lot of satisfaction because it kind of shows that you can kind of start one thing and it can uh, really flower into into a whole bunch of other areas. Just myself, personally, I've just really ten years. We would just love to be obviously healthy, uh, still enjoying the, the job, and and really, you know, hopefully having made as much impact as as possible on those areas. Well, Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a nice conversation. Awesome, thanks a lot, Grant. Uh, so anytime, and uh, folks, if you do want to join us at uh, at Nextflow Summit, both uh, Barcelona and uh, Boston still open. I would love to see you there and, and thanks so much for the time.